Blake Cutler may have injured his ankle. They go right back to Forte out of the backfield. A big gain here. A first down and maybe a touchdown. Forte being chased, and he will score. What is up? It is a unbelievably hot July 17, 2012 in Buffalo, New York. Season 2, episode 27 of the Sportscasters. I'm host Steve Bennett with my co-host Don Russ. What's up, Don? Hey. You know, it's funny because we get ripped on for having this awful weather here. Yeah, no kidding. But this is worse. To me, today, this is worse than any day we have in winter. Yeah, we had a really mild winter, too, so I guess we're paying for it with this brutal summer. Yeah, it's just, it's like, it's so hot that my lawn is basically turned to dust. Yep. You know what I mean? And Which is fine, because you don't have to mow it as much. That's true. I bought a new lawnmower, so I blame myself. Thanks for that. <laughs> anyway, uh, it is, as I said, the 27th episode of the second season of the Sportscasters, and it's going to be one of those days here where we're going to kind of play things by ear. This is what we know for sure. John Wertheim is going to be on the show today, and he's going to talk to us about all that's went wrong with the Penn State scandal. If you remember, when the Penn State story broke, John spent a week at State College reporting for the magazine, and we had John on shortly after that to talk about everything that had happened. Today we're going to talk to John about the new information, which Don's going to kind of cover in three things as well. But we're going to talk to John about the new information from Penn State, get some opinions there. We're also going to ask him about what he would do if he was Joe Piznanski. Let's not forget Piznanski yep. is supposed to release a biography about Paterno yeah, yeah. in a couple of weeks here. And Jeff Perlman, who's the author of our book called Book of the Month, Book of the Year, Sweetness, uh, blogged the other day that if it was him, he would scrap the book. I th- I thought about that. I mean, we'll talk about this, like you said, more in three yeah. things. But I, I don't know. We'll we'll get to it. We'll get yeah. Well, so we'll get into that more, and we'll do that with John Wertheim. Also, we're going to talk Major League Baseball trade deadlines from Ben Nich- with Ben Nicholson Smith from MLBTradeRumors.com. We're also going to update the book club. Do two, do three things and pick four. We might have another interview mixed in there. We might not. It might be just kind of a little bit of a shorter summer show for you this week. And if that's the case, that's okay. If we do add another interview, we'll throw Five on Fantasy in there as well. And then also this week, though, either way, no matter what happens here, we're also going to have a, another Football Nation show. Of course. Which you can listen to at www.footballnation.com. So either way, we got a pretty packed show. I know we're going to spend a lot of time talking to Wertheim about everything that happened. Uh, so let's, uh, let's get started. Let's jump right in with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right. The first thing this week. Like we already talked about off the top is uh, Joe Paterno. Even after death, uh, I guess negative news can find you. And that comes in the form of a, f- uh, 
I don't know his first name. Free report. They keep calling it. He's uh, it was an FBI agent that came out and basically has proof that Paterno, among others, not it's, only it's Lewis Free, by the way, Lewis Free. Right. Okay, not only knew about uh, the pedophilia. I mean, the crimes going on. Covered them up as he well. He did nothing and covered them up. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a bummer of a story, no matter how you put it. I mean, it was sad to begin with. This makes it worse, I suppose. Uh, his, his legacy is destroyed. There's, there's Crushed. I mean, there's nothing he'll be remembered for. Like It's like O.J. Simpson at this point. I mean, but probably worse. Uh According to ESPN sources, the statue is going to remain for, for now. now right? uh, I saw a picture online of someone that flew a plane over the top that says, take the statue down or we will. So I can't imagine that stays up. I mean, what, what well, I heard, would that I heard serve? that there was a, a mural somewhere and there was a painting of Paterno with a halo over him. Okay. And they at least have erased the halo. The halo? That's good. So that's one step. Also, they have the issue of like a library that he donated money to build is named after him. Can, Nike, you, can you pull that? Nike took his name off of uh, some sort of child care facility that his, apparently was on. Um, it's just – it's it's a really sad story. It's sad for – I mean it's sad for the victims. It's sad for people who – I feel bad for his family. Um First and foremost, obviously, I don't even think you have to preface it with it, but it's the worst for the victims and their families. But his family was pro- probably trying to hold on <clears throat> to any hope that they had that this is just a bad thing that happened while he was there. And the family probably had nothing to do with the cover-up no, whatsoever. No, you probably know? They probably not. didn't know about it. But they probably believed that their father or their husband was in a bystander in all this more, more than... Uh, not an instrumental player in it, but someone who knowingly covered it up. And like you said about Pesnansky's book, uh, that's the first thing that came to mind as far as I'm concerned is, at first it was kind of, okay, your first two acts are going to be about him and his legacy. The third act's got to be about... What happened. The tragedy. Right. Now, I don't know that you can write anything positive without somehow alluding to I think you'd almost have to rewrite everything, or at least reread everything. And, you know, this book... So this is kind of the timeline. Last year, he was going to spend the entire year living there to write the, you know, to right. be a part of it to write the book. In the middle of that process, the scandal breaks. The book wasn't gonna, supposed to come out until next year sometime because of the scandal. The publisher moved up the date that the book was going to be published to August twenty first of this year. Right. So. That really looks like a big mistake now because chances are the manuscript was closed last week. So any new information from the free report can't be included. And I have a feeling that when this book comes out, Poznanski is going to get killed because everything he writes – like let's say there's a chapter in there about him helping Vinny Testaverde with something or something like that. Right. The reviewer is going to say, yeah, great. We'll read this chapter where gush, where Joe gushes poetic about a child molester cover, you know, helping Vinny Testaverde. Who even cares about that? Right. I don't know what Poznanski's going to do with this. I am According to Joe, like I said, Jeff Perlman wrote a blog that I thought was really compelling saying that he would scrap it. That, that and, would have to be hard to do, but... Um... 
it's just such a bad spot. Yeah, if you take kind of like the just the business point of view of this, that book is going to sell a trillion copies. I mean, you remember when we talked to Zach? Scrap it. When we talked to Zachy Score, remember like how fiery, passionate he was about this. It's like, what would a guy like him, you know? And some more from that blog. I guess last year. Poznanski spoke at a class called Joe Paterno Communications and the Media. And some of the things he said there are really damaging. Like he says that the rust of judgment has been extraordinary. The lessons to learn might be that we screwed this thing up. I've never seen anything handled worse. Maybe how New Orleans post-Katrina. Paterno was always dangled by this university. It's, it's almost like, you know, he wanted to defend him. Right. And like now what is he going to do? Yeah, I, I mean... If he goes, if this book does come out, I really think he's going to have to somehow get the printing stopped, go back, and before every good thing he says about him, somehow apologize for it. You know what I mean? Like, you can't just say, like, oh, he, what a great man. This, it, It's a tough spot to be in. Do Let's watch up? this together. Do me a favor. Go to jeffperlman.com. There's a video there about Piznanski talking about the book. Let's check this out. You want to fade down the three things music? Sure. Let's check this out. Play that video. Let's see what he has to say. <laughs> you know what? Uh, it's been removed by user. Very interesting. So. Jeff Perlman took down his. No, this. this oh, you took down uh, this video was posted by Piznanski. Okay, took down Joe's video. So apparently, there is a video out there. This is the story from ShermanReport.com. Um, there's a video preview Piznanski did for the book prior to the news of the free commission. It now seems terribly outdated, doesn't it? The video has a graphic with the header that reads Joe Paterno, edu- educator, coach, humanitarian. Oops. Um, in the video, Paterno acknowledges scandal and says, I hope to get somewhere closer to the truth. Yet I wonder how people will accept Piznanski's version of the truth. This is a statement from the video. He was a fascinating, deep, not flawless, but generally decent person who tried to do a lot in his life. To me, the one thing Joe Paterno stood for was making an impact, an impact in people's lives, an impact on community, an impact on a college. That's what is most significant about him. Keep in mind, this video with Piznanski was released before the commission came out last week. However, you have to think that a published date coming up in five weeks, the book is mostly in the can. That's what we were saying. Do you get the impression that Jeff Perlman is a Joe Piznanski fan? He is. Okay. And he said that it's it's kind of pained him to say this. Yeah, I mean this, this is a mess. I mean we're getting really long on this, but yeah. I think it's important. But uh, I my first thought was now he, post post sorry to cut you off, but post free report, this is the only thing that Piznanski has said. He said, "I dedicated myself to write the most honest book I could about Joe Paterno. Everything I have to say about his life is in it." Yeah, I mean, I'd be like you said though. It was already sent to the publishers before he found out kind of the gory details at the end. But uh, on one hand, if you're Joe Poznanski and you scrap this book, you're scrapping probably millions of dollars. I mean, I don't know how that works. I don't know if he gets a cut of every book sold. I don't know if he has a deal with the publisher. The publisher is going to be losing a lot of money because this is something that people are going to want to read. 
do you think Joe Poznanski is going to do press for this book now? Like we we have yeah, I don't know we have a commitment from the publisher that Joe, Joe Poznanski will, will come on. But if he just decides to not do anything, right? And what is kind that of, possible? Can he hide from the book? And if he does come on, what kind of interview do we do? If we can't not raise questions about this we have a lot of respect for mr poznanski but we can't sit here like clowns and not right you can't do, do the, the real uh, interview the decision interview no it's brutal i don't i don't i absolutely don't know what i would do if i was in his shoes i don't know how much pressure he's getting from publishers because like i said everybody in the sports world is going to want to read what he had to say about paterno it's almost gonna it'd be more surprising after all this stuff came out if there wasn't a paterno people are going to want to read it but they're going to want to read it to kill it right and kill him. You know, I mean, there's a... There's They're a, definitely going to kill anything that isn't negative about Poznanski. There's a thing here. It says, written with unprecedented access, Paterno goes inside the mind of America's most brilliant and charismatic coaches. Do people... And then Sherman goes on to say, considering the outrage against Paterno, I don't think people are in the mood to read about a brilliant and charismatic coach. So is there a chance this book bombs then? Maybe critically, but there's no way this doesn't sell tons of copies. I mean, it's the biggest, it's the biggest college story maybe ever. Really, really interesting. Though. I mean, and it for a negative reason, but it's huge. All right, let's move on. We're gonna do more about that with uh, Wertheim when we talk to him later. My first thing today: three huge, four I guess, huge signings in the NFL this week. Uh, one, Drew Brees. Saints fans can finally exhale. Signed a $100 million deal over five years that's extremely front-loaded. Uh, he's going to make $40 million of the $100 million this year, and that money is guaranteed. Yeah. The Saints are going to have a couple-day window after each year to get out of the deal. Come on. But why would they? His leg would have to crack in half. Right. right. So he's going to make most of that $100 million, which is rare for a football contract. How old is he? I should know this, but... 30-something? 30 30. He's 30. Yeah, so he'll still be basically in his prime as long as he doesn't get hit. Uh, Also, Matt Forte finally got paid by the... um, Bears. Bears, $31.5 million over four years. And that's a good one because that's one that looked like it was getting ugly for maybe two years now. He's way outplayed his contract, and uh, they need him. I mean, I know they got Cutler and Brandon Marshall there now, but... And you fell for him when he was injured. You know, yeah, because he and Breeze is thirty three. He's not. He's okay, he was so born in seventy nine. He's one. He's one year older than me. Yeah, so thirty eight at the end. But yeah, um, yeah, Forte. That that's a huge huge deal because remember when he got injured last year? How bad you felt for him? Yeah, you know, like oh man. But he still ends up getting his money. Also, Ray Rice got a forty million dollar extension from the Ravens. And that's their whole five offense, year so they deal. needed that too. That's big. And so Jaguar fans don't feel excluded. Josh Gobi <laughs> got a fourteen million dollar deal over four years. Not bad money for a kicker. Not and at all. Probably we should also note in this story, Wes Welker and the Patriots did not get a deal done. Yeah, who do you think I mean I don't know the numbers, I don't know how far apart they are, but that to me seems like if you're Wes Welker, you are a guy in the perfect system. Uh, I think you gotta, and you're not young. You know what I mean? That I know he's very important to Brady, and if if he's for whatever reason sad, I mean he can't sit out now, right? He's got to play under his. And I guess he could, but he'd give up a ton of money. Right. But they got to get that resolved before next year, and they're just a team. They just don't pay people. No, right? they don't. They mm-hmm. don't. And I wonder if team people are going to stop going to the Patriots. 
Uh, I mean, you got the allure of Brady there. Uh, you know you're going to be a perennial contender. But do you worry at some point? That it's going to be tough at the end of the Brady era when you don't sure. have the allure yeah. of Brady there. But, uh, I mean, Gronkowski got paid. He did? That's, that's about the end of that list, right? It's short. I mean, they've walked away from a lot of players. But on the, on the other hand, they're typically right about it, too. So, I, I just if I'm Wes Welker... I, I think he's in the perfect situation. What what team? Maybe like a Kurt Warner led team, like a real quick hit offense. The sad like that. thing for him is he's got to go catch 108 balls in that slight frame next year and take a bunch of hits on yep. a one year deal. You know that's the sad thing for for Welker. Can they still negotiate an extension this season? I think I, it's too late. I think that's, that's what the deadline what the was four for. Like that yeah. was yeah. So so that'll be that'll be interesting. Uh, yeah, he's a big he's a big part of that offense. My second thing, kind of piggybacking off that, onto the other the negative side of the NFL. Right. Were the arrests? Uh, it was the week either if there was a news story in the NFL, it was either someone signing a deal yeah. or being arrested. Right, and we had gotten away from arrests. We we talked about on our Football Nation podcast that we try not to be overly negative in three things, but you really can't avoid it this week. Uh, three big arrests, three big name players: Marshawn Lynch, DUI. Uh, Des Bryant, misdemeanor family violence for pushing his mother, uh, allegedly. And Elvis Dumerville, aggravated assault with a firearm. And now, I don't think any of these are in stone yet, but those are all the They're all alleged. allegations. Right, right, yeah. Now, my question was, and I couldn't remember exactly, but when Marshall Lynch was traded from the Bills, part of the reason they traded him was because they had a real fear that he was going to get, his next suspension would be a season-long suspension. Is there some sort of... But that was, I think, for the substance policy, not the player conduct policy, right? Okay. So this would not fall under that well, DUI? I think that there's certain there's certain absolute punishments when it comes to substance policy that's different. I, I, okay. I've always that thought that right. the DUIs have fallen under the player conduct policy, not the substance abuse policy. The numbers I've heard thrown around, though, are four-game minimum. And uh, it seems like he's going to miss some time because of this now, if the allegations. But even saying that, the commissioner has suspended players. Even, I mean, there's been cases of Pac-Man Jones where allegations were eventually thrown out, but the commissioner still punished them for putting himself in, in a position to have those allegations. Right. And a guy like Marshawn Lynch, who's he's been, not going to be given the benefit, not going to be given right. the benefit of the doubt. I think that's what I ultimately mean. I mean, if you, since we may not do five on fantasy, if you want to do a quick hitter, I already said last week that Marshawn Lynch probably wasn't a first or second rounder to me, as safe as he was. Uh, this he, drops, he drops him way off now. I mean, if he's going to miss, especially if he's guaranteed to miss four or games or so. I mean, he's he's late, like. He's real hard to draft now too because if the, if that doesn't come out by the time your draft has taken place, it's going to be really hard to evaluate where you pick a guy like yeah, that. Yeah, a little more indecision. I mean, I guess the signings probably helped with some of that indecision, but uh, he added a little back to the running back indecision in fantasy. Okay, um, my second thing: uh, the end of Linsanity in New York City. That's a possibility. It seems kind of weird considering he was one of the most popular Knicks maybe since Patrick Ewing sure. over a small time last season. 20 games or something? And maybe remember, we had Pablo Astori on the show who had done back-to-back cover stories for SI yeah. on Jeremy Lin. And what happened is the Rockets, this is what I wish would happen more in the NHL. It doesn't. 
In the NBA, apparently, restricted free agents get more offer sheets, and basically, the Rockets just threw a crazy offer out. Three-year, $25 million million offer sheet. Uh, The Knicks can match it, but Stephen A. Smith has said that he's spoken to people within the Knicks organization who say, hell no, they won't match it. Right. Uh, the deal the deal carries a $14 million salary that would put the Knicks into the luxury tax for the, sh- the third, third season, straight right. year. Um, so, or yeah, in the third season. Yeah, he'd get like $8 million, $8 million, and then $14 million. And that's the one, I guess, is the sticking point, is that third year would, would put them in the, into the luxury. So if you're the Knicks, you have to balance. I mean, this is still a relatively unproven player from Harvard. Even if you're in the luxury tax, though, um, Look what Yao Ming has done. I mean, I guess I shouldn't speak to that. I, I don't follow basketball jersey sales or anything like that. But I imagine Yao Ming carried some uh, Asian followers. So maybe his jersey is a huge selling jersey because, I mean, there's a big population in China. I mean, there's, there's a huge population of people. Don't you think you could make up that luxury tax in endorsements that would come this – or I guess endorsements would go to him, but – couldn't you sell more jerseys uh, than the luxury tax is worth? Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I don't know. And the thing about Lynn is his international appeal. Right, that's what I mean. You know, so off the board. So it'll be interesting to see what the Knicks decide to do. But the rumor is he's going to be headed to Houston, and Houston's a great spot for him because Houston has Yao Ming, Yao Ming right. and you know that China fan base is kind of already built in, and they would, yep. I'm sure, completely embrace Lynn being there. Sure. Um, my last thing this week. Man from Ohio realized the dream maybe of uh, 10 and 12-year-old kids everywhere when he opened his attic or his grandfather's attic door who had uh, and found a cardboard box in there. And inside the cardboard box were about 700 baseball cards from, awesome. from 1910. And these cards were not only in the attic. You think, okay, yeah, whatever. These are mint. Like they had them PSA graded. These are mint nine. That's on a scale of ten. And like, if you know anything about collecting cards, when you open a pack of cards, it's hard to get a ten in the pack, even if you are super careful and don't even touch them, just from normal machine handling and everything. But these are all PSA nine cards, and they include nineteen ten include names like uh, Ty Cobb, Hannes Wagner. So big, big money. They said the he has a set of about. Uh, there's a bunch of them that are expected to go for about $500,000, and the whole set expected to go for about $3 million. So, I mean, these might be the best best preserved, I'm no collector, Since 1910 cards in existence, potentially. They're all they're all mint nines. It's amazing. Since I built my house, the chances are this isn't <laughs> going to be in my attic right now, huh? Yeah, probably not. I mean, how awesome is that to find that in your attic? It's, it's amazing. How does the grand? Well, oh, okay. It says here the grandfather died in the forties. I was going to say, how did the grandfather not realize he had cards in there? Someone would have told him that they're valuable now. But that's awesome. Yeah, that's a great story. Uh, nice gift from grandfather who had been dead for sixty years. So congratulations to that family. Okay, my last thing is this. Um, Vancouver Canucks goalie Roberto Luongo, who's had kind of a tough offseason himself, yeah. rumors about him and his career in Vancouver being over, spent last week playing in the World Series of Poker. And that's not really news in itself. You know, stuff happens all the time. 
with, you know, celebrities playing in this event right. and they go out real quick and they get on ESPN for two minutes and that's that. Luongo and his brother played in the tournament. Now, Luongo didn't pay the 10K to enter. His entry fee was paid by um, a lottery. Uh, let me find it. Oh, the BC Lottery Oh, I Corp. did hear that, yeah. Uh, forked over the entry fee. He, there were 6,598 players in the tournament, and he finished 634th place which means he won $19,277, which he says he plans to keep. <laughs> uh, he survived an early all-in scare by pushing all his chips with ace-queen. His opponent called with pocket sevens, but Lu- Luongo flipped a queen to stay alive. Eventually, he lost when he pushed with a weaker pair than his caller had. So, interesting story there. Okay, we said today would be crazy that we were kind of playing it by ear this is what we got from here on and this got really interesting so we're going to take a break we're going to do john wertheim next we're going to update the book club we're going to do an interview with ben nicholson smith we're going to do five on fantasy because we're going to do an interview with our old buddy zach you score who is now sooner zach who was the person who spoke most passionately about this paternal thing to us. We're going to talk to him about that. Also, he's a golf expert. We'll do a little British Open with him. So, Zach score is going to be our third guest, and then we'll close with pick four. So, we're really busy here. All of a sudden, we thought it might be a shorter show. Who knows how long we'll end up talking to Zach. Could be a longer show. So, let's end this right now. We're going to take a break and come back with John Wertheim. Our first guest today is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of Yale University. He made his first appearance on the Sportscasters while promoting the New York Times bestselling book, Scorecasting, The Hidden Influences Between How Sports Are Played and Games Are Won. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. In a couple weeks, he'll be off to London to cover the Olympics. He is the senior writer for Sports Illustrated and one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America. He is making his ninth Appearance on the show today, Warren Sportscasters. Welcome to the great John Wertheim. What's going on, Mr. Wertheim? How are you? My, man, my ninth appearance. Number nine. Yeah, this is like Alec Baldwin on SNL or something. i got I got to update that bio, but uh, I, I always appreciate the uh, – any reference to Bloomington, Indiana, I'll take it. <laughs> so I, I wanted to touch base with you because when the Penn State scandal kind of broke initially, you did a great job going down there and reporting on it. We talked to you then about it, and there's so much that was kind of, I guess, still up in the air. And I think a lot of what was still up in the air at the time was kind of what Joe Paterno's involvement in all of it was. And I just wonder, after everything that happened last week, I know the family is saying that they're denying some things that were in the free report. Uh, Where do you kind of stand in terms of feeling comfortable knowing what, Paterno's involvement was in all this at this point. Oh man, we're going. Uh, you're supposed to ease me into this. We're supposed <laughs> to talk about the weather or something. Um, it's hot. Where to be? Where to be at is hot. Where Where to begin on this? No, I mean I think that uh, this this free report is just brutal. I mean it's just absolutely damning. And so, by the way, were his comments afterwards. I mean he he stood up there and basically 
you know, pe- people were making inferences, and he was not uh, dissuading anyone from making those inferences. Um, that report I just thought was brutal. And, you know, I mean, if you'd followed the story, there were a lot of questions that we all wanted answered that were very tough to answer, in part because the university lacked anything resembling transparency. And I think this whole narrative, the whole timetable, this TikTok, it all hinged on whether Joe Paterno knew about this 1998 case. Remember, there was this event in 1998, this case. There was uh, almost 200 pages of documentation that ended up on the desk of the local prosecutor, the local prosecutor who has since, you know, disappeared mysteriously, we should add. But what it all came down to is, did Joe Paterno know about this 1998 case against Sandusky? And if you've been around college athletics or you just sort of have instincts, you would say, of course Joe Paterno knew. This was his number one assistant. Joe Paterno knew everything. Joe Paterno was sort of the mayor, sheriff, and king of state college. The notion that his top lieutenant would be the subject of a 200-page investigation on the desk of the local prosecutor, and Joe Paterno wouldn't know that, is just strains credulity. I mean, it just just wasn't believable. And yet, we were having a hard time actually asserting that because Penn State, in part because Penn State does not turn over records, and Penn State does not... uh, acquiesced to uh, request for documents. Well, Louis Free got that information. Louis Free was able to confirm that, indeed, Joe Paterno did know about this 1998 episode, and to me, that changes absolutely everything. I mean, Paterno is absolutely damned by this. It completely changes. I mean, think about this, the infamous shower episode with McQueary three, four years later. I mean, think about how that plays out. So McQueary goes to Paterno and says, I saw Coach Sandusky in the shower with a boy doing these horrible things. And Joe Paterno, who not only... You know, should have acted on the basis of that information, but now knows that Jerry Sandusky was subject to a similar investigation several years earlier. He he has that knowledge when McQuarrie goes to him, and is that negligent in acting? I mean, to me, that just that just absolutely shreds whatever legacy there is of Joe Paterno. It totally changes the whole way this narrative is spun out. And you know, I mean, I've, I've heard the family. We've all sort of heard the quotes they gave ESPN, and I I don't envy them at all. I mean, they're totally understandable. They're trying to sort of salvage their dad's reputation that he spent generations, decades building. But, boy, I mean, this that free report, I think, it basically confirmed everybody's worst nightmare, not just about Penn State, but about Joe Paterno. And I, I just, you know, this this is his legacy. I mean, we, we've all sort of made these comments in the past few days, but, like, winning that big game against Jimmy Johnston, the Miami Hurricanes, kind of pales in comparison to covering up a, you know, a serial sexual uh, pedophile. So, I mean, I, I think that that free report was just brutal stuff, and I think the, the 1998, confirming Paterno knew this stuff in 98, is really the, uh, that's, that's the game changer. We had a couple guys on, maybe a couple months after this broke, who wrote a book called Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. I kind of heard in your answer you kind of talking about that culture of silence, and is that maybe why it took us so long to get to this point? You kind of mentioned, you know, they don't release records and things like that. Is Are these the things that are going to really have to change for Penn State moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one reason why this death penalty talk is, is sort of uh, – you know, as, as extreme as it is, isn't totally crazy, is that there's a real culture here. And if you've been to Penn State, I mean, if you've sort of seen this in action, it, it makes a lot more sense. That I think I wrote, I think I wrote in the SI story, it was, it was like these Russian nesting dolls where they're like layer into layer. So basically you've got 
you know, sports are sort of separate from the rest of the university, as is the case at a lot of big schools. Football at Penn State is separate from sports. They have their own, you know, they, they sort of have their own building, they have their own facilities, they have their own budget. And the other great sort of detachment, the insularity, I think, is Penn State from big media, Penn State from big cities. I mean, if you are covering Penn State and don't have a good relationship with the football team, you're sort of cooked. There's nobody banging down doors. I mean, I don't think this could have happened as easily at USC in Southern California or at Washington in Seattle or at Miami. But you're in the middle of Pennsylvania, and you have this sort of ins- so it's geographically insulated. Sports are insulated from the rest of the, of the university, and football is insulated from that. And you're dealing with the elite coaches. I mean, this wasn't some grad assistant. This was Jerry Skandusky, who was, you know, the great defensive, you know, this was Paterno's lieutenant. This, this sort of got so sanctus sanctorum, you know, this sort of got so inside that, you know, it really, you can, I mean, it sounds horrifying, and it was horrifying and is horrifying, but if you kind of map it out, you can see how you could have this very, very, very internal cover-up. You mentioned death penalty talk, and I, I don't know if they'll get the death penalty or not, but are, is it almost a guarantee that Penn State is going to be punished in some way by the NCAA because of all this? You know, I think instinctively, I think reflexively, everybody wants them to be. We say to ourselves, you know, tattoos for jerseys, huh? You know, I mean, we're not, you know, you know what I mean? We, we say jerseys okay. for tattoos, and we all the, the usual, oh, Kelvin Sampson made uh, too many unauthorized texts. And you say, wait a second, if you're going to drop the hammer for that, what are you going to do when you have this? I mean, the problem is that this is sort of not really squarely in the NCAA's jurisdiction. I mean, there were criminal acts, but there weren't necessarily NCAA violations. I mean, I I think there are a lot of components to this in terms of punishment. I mean, imagine being in the Big Ten network right now. I mean, here's a network that's made, you know, nine-figure investment in this conference, and you've got one of its leading teams, certainly in football, in this really perilous situation. I mean, I think that, you know, Penn State itself might want to self-impose. I think that everybody wants justice. Everybody wants to see people pay. Everybody wants to see this culture destroyed. Everybody wants to see deterrence for other schools that have sort of similar dark secrets. Not that you can imagine too many rising to the level of this. But I think it's really a, a tough question. It's not quite that simple. I think it's a tough question of sort of who has the authority to punish. And also, I mean, the one problem I have with death penalty, I think it is true. There, You know, we've identified basically, you know, five bad guys here. Well, Jerry Sandusky's in jail, Joe Paterno's dead, and the three other guys, you know, Schultz, obviously Schultz, uh, Graham Spanier, and Curley aren't employed by the university anymore. So if you brought down this death penalty, who does it hurt? Well, a lot of 19-year-olds who hmm. were barely alive when this cover-up started. It hurts the small businesses. It hurts all of Penn State's other teams that are depending on the football program. I mean, I think, it, I think there's got to be a more sort of creative and ultimately helpful solution than just let's do the SMU job on this, on this football team, this rotten culture, because I think it's going to punish a lot of uh, – I think the collateral damage is going to be enormous. Would you bring the statue down? I would bring the statue down. I mean, again, I think there's a creative way to do this. Put a statue next to it of equal height that commemorates sexual assault victims. I and mean, I think, I think uh, you know, there, there's sort of ways to do this and ways to do this. But, no, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you keep that, that Joe Paterno statue there. I mean, I, I just think right now it's just it's, it's a mockery. I mean, this guy, I, mean, I was making this point to someone else. I said, you know, it's not just that these are horrible acts, but it's also that... His entire image, I mean, everything he stood for was built on this sort of 
moralism and this righteousness. I mean, if but you know, it's a it's a silly example to uh, covering up pedophilia, but you know. Bill Clinton deserves to be mocked for Monica Lewinsky, and he deserves condemnation, but it's not like his whole image was built on this foundation of marital fidelity and good judgment. So, um, I mean, I, I just think, you know, it's... it's I mean, how, how do you take anything tied to Joe Paterno seriously now? All right, you said that in the beginning I should have eased you in. I think after I ask this next question, you'll see that I did ease you in. I know this will be the hardest question. Just take it as I, whatever way you want. Even no comment is okay if that's what you feel you need to do. But there's also this other thing hanging over the sports world, and that is a paternal book that's coming out written by Joe, uh, written by your colleague, no Joe, Joe Piznanski. Hear me out first. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Keep going. Uh, Jeff Perlman, who's a former colleague of yours, wrote a blog post yesterday saying that if it was him, he'd scrap the book, that it just doesn't work on any level anymore. Maybe wait two years, come back to it, and everything will be kind of played out by then. If, if, you're, if you are, I mean, I know you spent time with Pizdansky when you were down there researching this. I mean, what, what does he do? Oh, boy. My, my better instincts are saying no comment, but there's something just terminally lame about a journalist whose whole job it is to sort of advance stories and get people to talk to play the no comment card. So I will simply say, uh, I, you know, I mean, he, it, it's a, it's an impossible situation for Joe, just impossible. I mean, I don't think, uh, I, I suspect if he knew any of this, he never would have taken that book deal. There's no way to sort of put a good face on this there, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, there are commercial pressures. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I probably would not have, uh, I got to be careful what I say here, but I, I, pro- I probably would not have gone along with my publisher's uh, wishes to capitalize on on the timeliness and rushed a book out for late this summer because he just right. there's no way that was going to end cleanly. I mean, it just it couldn't be done, and we all knew that this free report was coming. We all know that there's civil litigation and more stuff is going to come out. And you know, I mean, this this there's a business decision. I get that, and there's a publisher that's made a significant investment. But I, I think you just sometimes you just got to fold at the at the poker table, and I guess you know I mean Joe's you know J- Joe did not want to be Sarah Gana. you know J- Joe did not want to do J- Joe had a certain book in mind, and I get that, and his research was geared toward that, and this was a huge hairpin turn, and he did not want to you know o- own the the story, he did not want to start competing with Sarah Gannam, and and I get that too, but I'm not sure how anyone benefits with rushing a book out. I mean, it takes advantage of the timing, but it's awful timing. I mean, it's, it's timing that basically just obliterates Joe Paterno. And if, if, if I'm Joe, I think, you know, I, I, may, I may just have cut bait. Right. But I also, I also might have said, you know, let's really take a step back and let things unfold because when we try to get this book out by late summer of 2012 and in the second week of 2012, Louis Free comes out with a report that's just, the most brutal uh, document you can imagine in terms of this guy's legacy, no good can come out of that. So I think, you know, I mean, it's, it's I, I just have a feeling this is not, uh, this is not going to be pretty. And you, you just get the feeling that when, I mean, the book is in embargo right now, but it's supposed to come out, I think, August 21st or something like that, which is not that far off. You just get the feeling that when people read it, they're just going to say, they're going to take every sentence out where Poznanski writes something positive about, Paterno and say, yeah, but he covered up 
uh, guy molesting children. It's just like, can't win. Yeah, no, it totally, exactly. I mean, the, the, the great lesson that he may have told, uh, you know, Keith Giftopoulos, I'm pulling a name out of my, you know, whatever, Todd Blackledge, it kind of doesn't really compare to the fact that uh, we, we now have some pretty damning evidence that he not only ha- not you know not only harbored a, a few you know not only had Jerry Sandusky on staff but like active I mean the word the phrase that Louis Free kept using was an active attempt to conceal I mean that that's a cover up and that's a whole lot worse than just sort of this plausible deniability and I think you're I think you're absolutely right people are going to read this book and say I don't care I don't care that he went to the Friars Roast in Altoona and stayed two hours later and I don't care that he gave gave great wisdom to. Uh, you know, I don't know. Help me with. I mean, it's it's going to look. You know what? It's going to look like you saw the Matt Millen. Yeah. The, the Matt Millen fiasco. Mm-hmm. I worry this is going to be the literary version of the the Matt Millen fiasco, where it just it all seems really kind of insignificant in the face of this horrible story. And I think you know, I mean, I I like Joe personally. I like him professionally. I like his work. Um, I would love to have seen him in one sort of. You know, we had more facts, and once emotion had cooled, I would love to see him come in in 2014 and tell the story beginning to end and put everything in perspective and but boy in the summer of 2012 i mean how, how do you release a book on a guy when you know they're, they're these bombs are going off basically yeah i, I don't know i mean I, I i like joe um again I, I like him personally i like him professionally i consider him a friend i was with him the week i was in state college when all this was happening right. i don't envy him but i i do um I, I do have a hard time seeing how this this plays out. And these, you know, when when you have a book and the guy coming out six weeks after this, this such a damning report. All right, the sportscasters are here with our good buddy John Wertheim, who you can always follow on Twitter at John underscore Worth underscore Wertheim. We'll switch, switch gears and just talk tennis for a couple more minutes. And I'll let you go. Uh, thoughts on Wimbledon? Obviously, a couple really interesting things. Federer wins another major, and Murray playing in the final. Let's start there. Uh, I kind of thought going into the final, Murray could get the first set under his belt, kind of calm down a little bit. The pressure would come off, the big crowd and all the money that was spent on the tickets. It kind of played out that way, but Federer just proved to be too much. What did you think of the final and everything that went with it, the crazy ticket prices and the Scott in the final for the first time in however many years and – Federer winning another Wimbledon, all that. What were your thoughts? Uh, you know, I mean, first of all, one thing that's funny is that Wimbledon, for all of its sort of, uh, you know, for its for its elevated status, it still remains like about as expensive as a minor league game. I mean, it's still very inexpensive to actually get in. It's tough to get the ticket, but once you do, you're only going to pay like thirty bucks for it. So to hear these scalpers' prices was, was kind of funny. But um, you know, I, I think when the roof came out, that really helped Federer. I think I think Murray was was beaten. As opposed to, you know, he he did not beat himself. He did not uh, let the moment get to him. I mean, I think if there are some positives he takes away, it's that Federer played really, really, really well, like as well as I've ever seen him play to win that match. Um, and it wasn't a case of sort of Murray failing to meet the moment. I think I think the one thing that made to, to me anyway that made Wimbledon so strange is that the Olympics really mean a lot in tennis. Right. This year, for a variety of reasons, I, mean, I think some of that is the fact that it's going to be held at Wimbledon. Some of it's the fact that for a lot of these players, they represent their country's best chance at a medal. I think part of it is just, you know, the Olympics are cool. But to me, the whole thing is a little strange in that everybody's going back to the exact same place. We're turning to the scene of the crime 
you know, a few weeks later to, to have another high-stakes event. So Murray does not have time to wallow. He will, you know, return to the exact same court and now try to win a medal. But, you know, I mean, I, I think lost in all this, I think, you know, the, the Murray, Beckham in the stands, you know, can we finally break this British curse? I think that got too much play, and I think what got lost in this is that I thought Federer was just dazzling. I mean, I, I think once that roof went on and this basically became an indoor match, those last three sets, that's as well as I've ever seen Federer play. Hmm. How, many, how much more do you think Federer has in him? You know, I think the usual kind of metrics and math have to be really reconsidered. That tennis is getting older. I mean, I, I just saw a stat that, uh, remember it used to be like, you know, Pete Sampras was like 19 when he right. won the U.S. Open. There, there are no teenagers in the top 250. So, wow. uh, I mean, tennis as a sport is sort of maturing and getting older for a variety of reasons. But also, Federer is so light on his feet. He's not, he's not a grinder. He's almost, you know, it's almost like a knuckleball pitcher who's not, like, maxing out every time he, he throws the ball. That, you know, four years ago, we all said, oh, he's going to try to make it to London for the Olympics. And now the Olympics are here, and everybody's like, well, why doesn't he try to go for Brazil? <laughs> so, you know, he, he's, he's almost 31. He's ranked number one. He looked great. Again, he does not. He's never really had a serious injury, but he also doesn't have a game that has a whole lot of physical wear and tear. He's careful about his schedule. He has the financial resources and the good sense to really treat his body well. If he were still, you know, I don't think he's going to be number one, but if he were still playing four years from now, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. I wouldn't hold you to it because it's still a little bit out yet, but is he your favorite for, for the gold medal? Or do you th- still think? Yeah I, yeah, I don't think, I mean, yeah, totally. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how he could be. He just won on the exact same surface. Um, you know, the, he's actually not done particularly well in the Olympics, at least in singles. So I think there's incentive there. You know, Nadal is coming off this brutal loss to this real nobody. Djokovic seems a little burnt out. You know, you'd say Andy Murray, but hey, those two guys just played on the exact same court, and you saw what the result was. I, I think Federer's, you know, Got a real good chance of winning a gold medal. All right. A uh, couple things on the women, and, and then we'll go. Uh, d- the Williams sisters, you know, Venus, she goes out in the first round. Obviously, she's having her health issues. Serena was out in the first round in French and then goes on to win it. Serena, is she the best? Is she getting close to at least being in the conversation as the best female player of all time? Oh, I'm the wrong person to ask. Because I say yes, absolutely, and I get hammered for this. She does not have as many Grand Slam titles as Chris Everett and Martina and Steffi Graf and, and Margaret Court, but I, I just think you look at what she's done, you look at who she's done it against, you look at sort of the duration of her career. I mean, she wins Wimbledon in 2012. Her first Grand Slam title came in 1999. <laughs> she also she led the tournament in aces. I mean, she, she had 102 aces, which was more than anyone, even the men who were playing longer matches. That's got, when we talk about greatest of all time, that's got to count for something. I, um, as far as I'm concerned, she's the best ever, and she won't be as decorated. She won't win as many titles as other players. But I just, you know, if she played Chris Everett, even with the equipment being equal and blah blah blah, you know, the same strings and the same, she she, you know, she'd obliterate her. And I think that that's got to count for something. I mean, no, nobody says that, uh, you know, George Mikan is the best NBA player because we all know. What would he do against, uh, you know, Jordan against Kevin Durant and Shaq and Tim Duncan? Well, it's kind of the same thing. Now, it, it just has always seemed to me that when she's focused on tennis, when she wants to be playing at her highest level, she's unbeatable. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what drives people crazy, that they say you know, she's, she could be the greatest ever, and she's also the greatest underachiever because she has these sort of, uh, she has these dips. But to me, I think it's almost more impressive that she can overcome this. And no, I mean, it's, it's, it's never boring. Like, you just never know what you're going to get. She's getting defaulted. I mean, she'll... It, it's always something with her. It's never uh, never a dull moment. But she has a really unbelievable ability to uh, just kind of resurrect her. I mean, again, she, as you said, she lost. I mean, I was there in, in Paris, whatever that was, you know, the, the few days after Labor Day, and she's on the court, and she's in the middle of the match. She's crying. The great Serena Williams, and she's crying and loses to this player who's not even ranked number 100. And this would just devastate other players. And she basically says, oh, I was a, you know, it was a crappy day at the office, and then next time she goes out there, she wins the whole tournament. So, no, she's, she's, she's amazing. And I, I think that, um, you know, again, she's not going to retire with as many big titles as other players, but just the way she's done it, the level that you just sort of see with your own eyes, that, you know, I mean, I don't think, I don't think if Michael Jordan had fewer NBA titles than Elgin Baylor, we'd be making the case that Elgin Baylor was better, and I think it's a little bit of the same thing with this. So you're headed to the Olympics you going to be focusing mostly on tennis down there, or what's kind of your plan for London? Uh, good, good. Let me let me know when you find out. I'm still trying to get a. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm I'm going to work for. Uh, I think I'm going to double dip and actually do uh, do tennis for NBC. I think I'm going to be doing TV during the tennis, and then just kind of be a uh, a rover of sorts for the segue. I've, I've never covered an Olympics before, so um, I'm looking forward to it. But uh, I think I think it's tennis and then TBD. Tennis it's a new, it's a new, uh, gotcha. it's a new sport this year. It's, it's an exhibition sport this year. <laughs> John, thanks for making some time for us today, and uh, we'll check in with you when you get back from London. All right, deal. Very good. All right, thank Always you. A pleasure. Yep. All right. All right, I want to thank John Wertheim for making his ninth appearance on the Sportscasters. And i got to give John a lot of credit for being willing to comment about the Poznanski issue. I know Wertheim and Poznanski are friends. I'm sure that wasn't the most comfortable thing for him to do, but I, I give him a lot of credit for uh, kind of stepping out and doing that. Um, as for the book club, last week's episode, or episode number 26 of this podcast, you can still find it at our website, www.sports-casters.com, features an interview with the book club book of the month author, Jack McComb. The book has now been out for a week, and it's pretty much the number one sports book on any uh, list of sports books you find. It's called Dream Team, How Michael, Magic, Larry, Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball Forever. It's our book club book of the month for July. And a cool thing that has happened since we've had Jack on is kind of the debate on whether or not <laughs> this year's version of the Dream Team yeah could beat the original Dream Team. And Larry Bird had a really funny quote saying something like, yeah, they probably would beat us. I haven't played in 10 years. Yeah, yeah, I got the quote right here. Larry Bird says, they probably could. I haven't played in 20 years, and we're all old now. (laughs) So I think uh, Charles Barkley also said, you know, there's only three or four guys who could be on our team. team, Uh, So I I think, obviously, the original Dream Team would beat any version of the Dream Team since then. Especially the team that like didn't even win a medal. I think that's two thousand four. The redeemed, or no, the redeemed redeem team, team was, was two thousand eight. Right, right. They had a redeem for two thousand four. It's disaster. But uh, again, the book is called Dream Team: How Michael Magic, Larry Charles, and the Greatest Team of All Time Conquered the World and Changed the Game of Basketball Forever. Uh, if you want to listen to our interview with the author of that book, Jack McCollum, it's episode number 
Season 2, Episode Number 26 of the Sportscasters, which you can find at www.sports-casters.com. We're going to take a break. We're going to take a step away from the Poznanski and Paterno stuff for a second and talk a little bit with Ben Nicholson-Smith from MLBTradeRumors.com about, well, trade rumors. Sounds good. So we'll be right back. Our next guest is making his fourth appearance on the Sportscasters. He lives in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and is a graduate of the University of Western Ontario. He also has a master's in journalism from Carleton University. In his career, he has covered baseball, basketball, and the National Hockey League. Today, he's a staff writer at the wildly popular Major League Baseball TradeRumors.com. Since starting in 2008, he has contributed over 5,000 posts for the website and covered the GM. GM meetings and many live Major League Baseball games. A warm sportscasters welcome to the very talented Ben Nicholson Smith. What's up, Ben? Hey, Steve. How's it going? Thanks for that intro. Yeah, we're excited to have you back. It's been uh, been probably since last baseball. Actually, I have it right here. Nine twenty seven eleven was the last time we had John. So right about uh, playoff time last year. Yeah, a lot's happened since then, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing that's happened, which you're really close to real quickly, is Jose Batista went on the uh, DL last night with a wrist injury. Anything new that you've heard about that today or seriousness of it? Do they just expect it to be the 15 days? or? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, so far, John Farrell hasn't addressed the media or anything like that. So he's on the disabled list. Anthony goes is up, and you know, hopefully it'll heal quickly for, for everybody involved. Yeah. Well, Let's start with this. It's pretty interesting because obviously this is the first year with the second wild card. And I think it doesn't take a genius to say this, but I think what the second wild card has done is it's made more teams feel like they're in competition for a playoff berth later in the season. How do you think that's going to affect the trade deadline at the end of the month here? Well, the short way of explaining it is that there are going to be more buyers and fewer sellers, and that means that the teams that are sellers, so the Cubs and Twins and Padres, are going to be in a pretty good position because every other team in baseball is still holding on to the hope that they can re-enter the race, and those teams are going to be calling them about the players that they have made available. Who are some of the big-name players that are available for teams who are trying to get better? Well, before we get to the players that are definitely available, I think it makes sense to mention a couple players who might be available, and those are Cole Hamels of the Phillies and Zach Greinke of the Brewers. So that's what everybody's waiting on. And then you've got players like Matt Garza and Ryan Dempster and Carlos Quentin who definitely are available, and they're probably heading up the class as the, as the top names available this summer. Now, you mentioned on the website today that the Marlins could become sellers. Tell us a little bit yeah, about that. Yeah, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it would definitely change things uh, throughout the league because it would add a couple of starting pitchers onto the trade market, a trade market that's already pretty rich in starting pitching. So you'd have guys like Anibal Sanchez and Josh Johnson available if the Marlins were to become sellers, and potentially other names, Omar Infante, Randy Choate. So it would add a little bit of life to the trade market, and basically create one more seller, which, you know, as I was saying before, there aren't too many sellers right now, so that would probably be a pretty welcome addition to a lot of other teams. Now, it seems like 
we focus on the 31st, but often some of the bigger names are moved before that. And another thing I saw you wrote on the site is you quoted a report by Jason Stark of ESPN saying that the Cubs are trying to move Dempster by the end of the week. Who are some of the teams that are in the mix for Dempster? Well, the Dodgers are in the mix, the Tigers, the Red Sox, the Nationals apparently have inquired. Uh, you've got a whole bunch of teams that could use a guy like Ryan Dempster. 35 years old, but still having a really good season, leads the league in ERA, and I think he's someone you could look to as a really likely candidate to provide 9 or 10 quality starts down the stretch. So he's not necessarily going to light things up like Zach Granke. He doesn't have a World Series MVP like Cole Hamels, but he's only under contract for one year. He's going to be pretty dependable, you have to think, and that's why a lot of teams are interested. Let's talk about some of the specific teams and kind of what you think their plan will be for the next couple of weeks here. Let's start with the Yankees. The Yankees were pretty quiet during free agency. They added some parts. One of those parts went down for the season, had Tommy John surgery. What do you think the Yankees will do? What do you think they need to do, if anything? I don't think they need to do too much. I I think they will consider upgrades to the rotation, but... C.C. Sabathia is coming back off the disabled list tonight, and that'll be a nice addition for them. And they'll expect Andy Pettit back after, uh, after he's ready. So that should be a couple of nice additions to the rotation. They could make an upgrade in left field, and they've reportedly checked in on names like Justin Upton and Shane Victorino. But it, it's not a guarantee that they'll add somebody, and they don't really have to because they have gotten pretty good production out of the tandem of Raul Ibanez and Andrew Jones so far this year, and I don't think Brian Cashman is going to be desperate as a result of that. It's unbelievable. All of a sudden, they have a nine-game lead in that division. The teams below them in the American League East probably getting pretty close to accepting the fact that they're in it for the one of the two wild-card spots. Baltimore, Boston, Tampa Bay, and the Blue Jays all have 46 or 45 wins, respectively. Do all of these teams expect to at least inquire about adding players? I mean, none of them are going to fall into the seller category, right? Yeah, I, I think that they're all going to inquire about adding players, but I don't know that the seller-buyer distinction is as pronounced as it has been in the past. And part of the reason for that is that there aren't a lot of teams that are flat-out sellers. So I can imagine the Rays, for example, trading from their starting rotation depth, or the Red Sox trading from catching or outfield depth, or the Blue Jays, you know, potentially making a move uh, from shortstop depth. They're rumored to be considering deals involving Yanel Escobar. So I think that you might see these teams try to add in one area and subtract in another. What about some of the teams that are ahead of schedule this year? You know, teams that we didn't expect to contend, but yet here they are. Pittsburgh comes to mind, one game out of first place, 49-40. and 40. The Mets, certainly nobody expected them to be three games over 500 at this point. Um Everyone expected Detroit to kind of run away with the Central, but the White Sox and Cleveland are still in contention there. These teams that are ahead of schedule, will they be willing to trade off some of their prospects to make a run this year, or do you think that they'll try to stay stay pat? You know, I think that they will be willing to make deals. And, you know, taking the Pirates, for example, I think it makes sense for them to trade prospects, not necessarily for rental guys who are going to disappear at the end of the season, but I do think that if they could get, let's just say, Justin Upton, then that would be something that would probably make sense for them. So it makes a lot of sense that they are trying. They're talking to the Diamondbacks about potential Upton trades, and potentially they'll be able to make something work in that department, even though there are going to be a lot of other teams going after Upton. Yeah, Pittsburgh's obviously a team that definitely needs a bat in their lineup. 
up you mentioned Upton. Are there any other names that uh, Pittsburgh could look to add to strengthen their lineup? Tons of them. I mean, I mentioned Carlos Quentin before. Shane Victorino would be another guy. Uh, you could look to Josh Willingham. I think he'd be a pretty nice fit if the Twins are willing to move him. doesn't sound like they will be looking to, but if the Pirates sort of bowl him over with an offer, I think that Minnesota would listen. So they will have some options, and there would be other lesser names as well if they wanted to go for maybe more of a, a part-time or platoon type of player. Do you think there's a, a, a name out there that we haven't really considered being moved that could be moved? Is there a, a dark horse maybe to be traded, a, a bigger name that we're not kind of focusing on right now? Right now we're focusing on you know, Dempster and Granke and Upton. These are the names you hear over and over and over again. Is there anyone you could see being moved that would kind of make us go, wow, didn't, didn't expect that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think you could look to the raised pitching staff that that would have some guys like a Wade Davis or you know, potentially even a James Shields. So that he's been in some rumors recently. So I think that that's one one team, one situation that could develop in in a little bit of an unexpected way for a team that's above 500 and has reached the playoffs three of the four three of the past four seasons. So that's one possibility. I I think that you know I, I would love to be able to give you a list of under the radar names to be moved right now, but if I knew that, then it would be not so under the radar. So I, you know, I have no doubt that there will be surprises, but I I don't know. I I can't tell you who they will be at this point. The sportscasters are here with Ben Nicholson Smith from MLBTradeRumors.com. Uh, really, it's more than just a website. I wanted you to take a second and tell us a little bit about all of the different ways where fans can get rumors from Major League. MLBTradeRumors.com. I mean, you guys got the iPhone, iPad app. You guys just released a, an Android app. There's Facebook. Tell our fans a little bit about all the ways they can follow your guys' work as we get closer to the trade deadline. Yeah, you mentioned the apps, and they definitely come in handy. They're they're pretty uh, pretty good now. They've been through a few iterations, and they've gotten to a really good point. And then we've also got Twitter, which is uh, pretty crazy this time of year, and we can. We can keep everybody up to date with, with Twitter, so follow us at MLB Trade Rumors, and then, of course, the site itself, which, as you mentioned, is MLBTradeRumors.com. All right, last thing. Um, we're getting closer to this deadline of the 31st, but that's not the end of trading. Obviously, at, after that point, players have to pass through waivers. As you kind of see the landscape shaping up, do you think that we'll have the majority of the moves happen before July 31st, or do you think that there will still be a lot of action after July 31st? I think this is a really good question because I tend to think that there will be a lot of action after the deadline. You know, you look around the league and you've got guys like Alfonso Soriano and Wandy Rodriguez, even Justin Morneau, Jeff Francoeur, Vernon Wells, Sean Figgins, all these guys with clear waivers. And that's just a handful of names off the top of my head. I mean, there are tons of guys who could clear waivers who I haven't mentioned and who would definitely appeal to teams down the stretch when they have a closer idea of where they stand. So I do think August will be really busy this year. All right, Ben, thanks for the time today. We're going to keep you close here in the next couple months as it should be a really interesting season of uh, trades in Major League Baseball. But thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leon Lett, Ocho Cinco, TJ Cushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. I want to thank Ben Nicholson-Smith for joining us, talking a little bit of Major League Baseball trade rumors. 
It's time for Five on Fantasy this week, and what we're going to do, it's funny because just the other day, I was hanging out with, uh, with a different group of, of people, and um, the idea of a fantasy league being created for those people came up, and when you get to the point of deciding on starting a new fantasy league, there's a couple of issues that you have to decide on before the league can progress, and we said last week on Five on Fantasy Don and I would kind of debate some of these issues. So we've picked out three issues that we'll debate a little bit, and they're kind of the essential things yeah, very high for level. creating a league. Yeah, we didn't get quite into like the intricacies of scoring and stuff, but high level, very basic questions you have to answer. Before. And I guess the first one we should start with is, how many players do you need to have a fantasy football league? Right. I mean, the typical... Uh, ESPN, NFL.com, if you look at their mock drafts, it's typically 10 or 12. Once in a while, you see a larger league. Um, I think you need at least 10. Otherwise, the less teams you have, it's too the easy. more talent you have. Stacked. And teams then, stacked. Right. Every, you're not winning leagues because you drafted someone great in the eighth round because they're still really good players in the eighth round. You're just winning based on who got luckier that week for the most part. Um, Whose stacked team stays healthiest. Right. Yeah, I I think you need at least 10 for sure. And I've always preferred 10 over 12 for whatever reason. I think 10 and 12 is kind of the the majority of fantasy leagues usually either have 10 or 12. I've always preferred 10. I've been in leagues with 10 and I've been in leagues with 12. For whatever reason, 10 seems like the perfect number for me. What do you prefer? I don't necessarily think I have a preference between the two. You just have to prepare differently, obviously. And the more numbers you get like you can get up 14 16 team leagues at that point you really need people that are dedicated fantasy football players because it's not as i mean you're you're drafting significantly more players than you would in a 10 team in a 10 team league and i think strategy becomes real important in the bigger leagues like we were in a 16 team last last year me and you were in a kind of an experts league together right and one of our strategies and we picked late in the first round so one of our strategies was okay, we're not going to have the best running back in this league, but let's make sure we have the best quarterback. And we ended up taking Aaron Rodgers because yeah, that's, that was the only place we could make sure our team would have an edge. And not only – quarterback becomes way more important, the more the league size goes up too because of the number of starting quarterbacks that will be played every week. Uh, if Everyone's going to have probably a, a somewhat decent wide receiver, but the gap there won't be huge. The gap from the number one quarterback to like the number sixteen quarterback could potentially be very big. There's somebody out there that's going to be in a sixteen team league that will have Ryan Fitzpatrick as a starter, I would imagine. Uh and I like Ryan Fitzpatrick as a Bills fan, but not on my fantasy team. Whereas in a ten team league you wouldn't necessarily have that. You can wait a little bit longer on quarterback because the tenth best quarterback might be somebody like in tight ends. Cam Newton or somebody in last year in that would have won your league. So, yeah, tight ends Get really important because there's only a few good ones, and when you're starting 16 each week, you know... Yeah, someone's you got can a quarterback a, that's putting up zeros maybe potentially. You can get a huge edge if you're the guy starting Rob, Rob Gronkowski and you're playing a guy who's starting Jake Boss. Right. You know, that gives that's a way to give your team a huge edge. So I think the higher amount of teams in a league the more you need to make sure you map out your strategy especially depending on where you draft and if you draft at the beginning of a 16 team league you better make sure you get a good player at the very beginning because of how long you have to wait absolutely you have to be as safe as possible you can't take a risk 
No, and when you have leagues, no matter what the size of leagues are, you're talking kind of about drafting at the beginning or end of the round. There's no such thing as reaching at that point unless you're making some crazy risk because if you have 20 or in a 16-team league, 30 picks in between, the guy that you might really want might be a little bit early at that 20 But it's your last chance. It's your last chance to get them. So if you really want someone, you have to. I shouldn't say there's no such thing as reaching. You have to reach a little bit more if you're at the ends or beginnings of of larger team drafts. Next thing we have to uh, argue about, or not really argue, but break down the pros, cons. uh, Auction versus standard draft format. Hmm. I've always done standard. I've never been in an auction, but that doesn't mean I haven't wanted to be in an auction. Here's, I think, the huge advantage for auction. When you walk into an auction draft, every person that comes to the draft has a chance to get every player. Right. When you go into a standard draft, there's only one or two people there who have a chance to get Arian Foster on their team. Right. In just about every league this year, Arian Foster is going to be one of the first four players picked. Sure. Let's say that in 99% of leagues this year, the first four picks are going to be Foster, McCoy, Rice, and Rogers, Rod. Well, let's just say three. Let's just take those okay. big three guys because we would argue that in every league those would be the top three in some order, pretty much. Unless yes. at least at running back, right? Unless you have a quarterback heavy league, or right? Something. Right. So the only three people who have a chance to draft McCoy, Foster, or Rice are the people that draft one, two, or three. In an auction, every person gets that chance because. When it's your turn in the first round, all you're doing is putting a player up for auction, and then each person has to balance their budget and decide how much money they want to spend on that player. Right. If you want Adrian Peterson, you can have him for a certain price. I like to play board games because I'm a big dork. And uh, in the board game world, they have games they call abstract board games. I'm not sure why they call it that, but what that means is basically uh, low level of luck. Like chess is a zero luck game, so that's an abstract game. I would say auction falls more under that category where standard there might be some luck involved. Right off the bat, the luck of the draw as to where you draft. In auction, there's very, very little little luck involved unless you consider other people making mistakes luck. Like if, if people go on a run on tight ends and get crazy spending money on the 10th best tight end on the board just because there's none left and you benefit from that. I mean, it's not really luck. That's just you be playing better. So auction's all about strategy. Not that standard isn't, but there is some luck uh, with guys slipping and whatever else. I would love to do an auction league too, but like we said about league size, if you're in a larger league or if you're in an auction league, you need committed, more hardcore people. Uh, auction's not nearly as popular, or at least not nearly yeah. as prevalent. And I think too, if you have a lot of newbies in the league, you probably need to stick to standard. Yeah, you don't want to start. You don't want your first league to be an auction, probably, because even with the you can have never played, just use a cheat sheet and draft a standard team that's very competitive and, if not a winner. Auction, you can get a cheat sheet that has estimated values on it, but it doesn't tell you about how you should spend your money. Should you spend it all on, uh, what do they call it, like the scrubs and stars type strategy where you spend it all on a quarterback and a running back and the rest is just filler guys? Or do you spend everything equally and you just get a lot of middle-of-the-road guys? I mean, that's all you get. There's no lucky way to do that. Uh, there's no cheat sheet that can tell you the perfect formula for auction, whereas in standard, it's, it's a little bit more forgiving. I think as fantasy football has evolved, what we've seen is 10 years ago, someone who was more into fantasy football, someone who took more time to prepare, 
uh, a, win. A, they would win more often right. than they do now. Now with updated cheat sheets on the internet and things like that, the lesser uh, involved player has a better chance to win. So I think that has made people who don't want to deal with that level of luck float towards the auction, auction side because right. it's a way to put their advantage back into play. Sure. So I think that's it. All right, last thing we wanted to debate today is you always hear about PPR or non-PPR. Some leagues award one point per reception. That's what PPR stands for. Some leagues do not have that figured in. Uh, what this does is it creates more value for wide receivers and also creates more value for running backs who catch a lot of passes out of the backfield. Uh, what do you prefer, Don? I guess PPR, but I don't really have a good reason for it. Um, it makes it does it adds a little bit of like a, a wrinkle to the game because it makes somebody like Wes Welker, who may not get the most yards in the league, a, a lot more valuable. A guy like Roddy White, maybe not, maybe before Julio Jones, who was just a catch machine. I mean, those guys become more valuable. Uh, running backs like Darren Sproles is goes way up, arguably. What a top ten guy, easily maybe. So it does add that wrinkle for sure. Uh, I don't have a good reason for preferring it. Yeah, I remember Michael Fabiano when he's the first time he was on the show. He's like, I love PPR. I want all my leagues to be PPR. And when we created our listener league last year, we had it PPR kind of in his honor. But you know, I I like PPR better too. I, I don't know why. Another option is half PPR. Right, You know, some leagues, and we did this for a long time, some leagues have kind of split the difference and awarded a half a point per reception. I've seen leagues that will offer like a half point to a receiver and a full point to like a running back and a tight end. I mean, you could get crazy with this, and really there's no good or bad way to do it. Just make sure you read your rule book before you draft because it, it'll matter. Yeah, so with 5 on Fantasy today, we just wanted to get a couple of these issues out and talk about them a bit. Nothing too involved. We'll step it up next week. And, uh, <laughs> we'll be close we'll get... to training camp next week. We're yeah. Getting, we're getting there. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come back with uh, Zach Rosenfield, who, if you're new to the podcast, is one of the founding fathers of this show. He, he was on before anyone wanted to come on, really, and he was on quite a bit. He's kind of switched jobs. He used to be at AccuScore, which is a kind of a, statistical predictor of winners and the losers. evil computers Dave Damage yeah Dave Damage should call them the evil computers but now he's in PR he's kind of stepped away but he's a guy who really passionately has Very some really passionate. passionate opinions about the uh, Joe Paterno gets a little blue in spots yes so, uh, not maybe not safe for work if you're listening at work put your headphones on that's right we'll be right back with uh, Zach Rosenfield <laughs> Our next guest today is one of the founding fathers of the Sportscasters. He's from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of the Oklahoma University. A warm, warm Sportscasters welcome to the great Zach Rosenfield. What's up, Zach? You sooner, sooner Zach. <laughs> sooner Zach on Twitter, right? What's up, buddy? Where you been? Oh, man, just working, trying yeah. to make an honest living. You're in the PR world now, huh? Yeah, my days of being a uh, podcaster are few and far between now. Now I just participate by listening. So tell us about PRing. What's going on with the PR stuff? 
Man, they got me busy. Um, I just uh, am working on a movie called Ballplayer Pelotero that was executive produced by Bobby Valentine that seems to have Major League Baseball up in a huff. It's a movie about uh, two Dominican baseball players in the run-up to their international signing day on July 2nd in 2009. Hmm. And in the Dominican, you have you are free. The earliest you can sign is 16 years old, whereas it's 18 here in the United States. And the movie chronicles two players, a guy named Juan Batista, who ends up... Uh, I won't blow him, but the other guy is uh, Miguel Sano, who is one of the hottest prospects for the last 10 years to come out of the region, and during the documentary, he's red flagged for potential age fraud, and the movie goes in and out of um, the politics, the corruption that exists within MLB and the Dominican, while following the Sano scandal from uh, from tryouts to uh, whether it does or does not get resolved. So and this movie is on Major League Baseball's radar, and they don't what they don't want it to see the light of day, or what's the issue with them? Well, I mean, they don't get a vote on whether you get to see the light of day, but the movie has some pretty uh, pointed, uh, pretty pointed um, accusations or intimations at, at Major League Baseball, largely alleging that there could have been foul play amongst the uh, investigator and the Pittsburgh Pirates, and. The movie has come to Bud Selig's attention, and it was spoken about last week in his uh, press conference in which he said the movie was inaccurate, and then the next press said he hadn't seen it. <laughs> and MLB had put out some statements stating it was inaccurate. Uh, wasn't able to substantiate it at all, but then went on to talk about all the changes that had taken place since the movie was made in '09. But, you know, it's neither here nor there for our movie. It's still a telling portrait of the state of Dominican baseball in 2009. And, uh, you know, I'll leave it for the viewers to see. You can see it on iTunes. You can see it on Amazon. It's also in theaters uh, nationwide right now. has what's called a day-and-date release where it's in theaters and uh, VOD at the same time. So I can get it on iTunes tonight? You can get it on iTunes right now. Oh, we awesome. Just the interview. We can just watch it together <laughs> over the phone. Sweet. <laughs> I will definitely do that for sure. Yeah, so that's just one of many, but uh, it's fun. I, I think uh, I'd really recommend your users to watch it. It's almost... Uh, Is there a lot of subtitles? No, I mean, there are, but I think you'll be all right. Okay. Uh, I mean, if you can read and yeah, have I the can. ability to hit pause <laughs> and uh, are, are fairly educated, I, I think you're going to do okay with it. All right, awesome. All right, so that's an update for everyone on the whereabouts of Sooner Zach. Can't have him on as much as we used to because the guy's busy working. So we understand. But we had on, we had to have you on today for a couple of reasons. First is golf. We love talking golf with you in the British Opens this week. So we'll do that last because that will be the most pleasant part of the conversation. Yeah, certainly the part that everybody is uh, tuned in for. Right. The other thing is over the we woke up today thinking we were going to do an interview with John Wertheim, who's one of our best buddies like you. Uh, we knew we were going to talk a little bit about – about Joe Paterno, but we didn't realize to what extent. Now, last time you were on, you were the one of anyone who has talked about the Joe Paterno issue on this program who's been able to articulate it the most passionately. And I guess before we get into uh, the Poznanski, Perlman, Sherman stuff, let's just start with what your feelings are now that you have heard the latest news from the Free Report. Where do you stand on all of the issues related to the Penn State scandal up to date since we talked to you last. Oh, man, I'll tell you, my, my opinion hasn't changed. You know, I still, still think Paterno is a protector of, uh, uh, of child rape and uh, the type of guy who would go out of his way to do everything to protect his legacy, include commit perjury, 
lie to Sally Jenkins on his deathbed, uh, and also create an environment where kids could be freely raped in his uh, athletic facility because he didn't want any bad publicity. Uh, and, you know, you read... The more you read about Joe Paterno, the more you read about what a scumbag he is. And, and let's not mix words. Joe Paterno's a bad guy. And nobody knows Joe Paterno, just like none of us really know anybody who's in the public light unless you actually know him. And I, I guarantee you also, you know, I, I always think of like one of these defenses that the people use with Sandusky, which is, well, he was too busy to do what, what's being accused of. I mean, that's nonsense. You know, everybody has demons. Everybody has things that they don't want to find out. And when you're a, a pedophile, you know, you find time for that. And he found time for it. And, you know, I, the, it, it's, it's interesting. If you, if you want to go on, like, full-blown tilt or have your head explode, just read all that the New York Times is doing and reporting about, uh, you know, good old Joe Paterno, a guy who... You know, he's a football coach. I mean, he's not a humanitarian. He was a guy who allowed an environment where kids can be raped to protect his own legacy. And when he knew the hammer was going to come down, and when he got summoned and uh, subpoenaed to testify for the grand jury, he immediately called to have his um, his contract renegotiated. And who did he renegotiate it with? He renegotiated it with other guys who were also committing perjury, who were also having to speak for the grand jury, who were in and colluding with him on the line, creating the environment uh, of pedophilia at Penn State. So the guy renegotiated his contract, got them to forgive $350,000 in interest-free debt. So basically, he, he didn't even pay his debts. He's not a man. He's a Welch. And then he decides that he's going to bow out at the end of the year because he knows that the controversy is going to hit controversy hits and he's going to do us a favor like he's going to step off and let people you know just work itself out leaving out conveniently that it was all part of a pre-negotiated deal so he can walk away with millions and his wife can have hydrotherapy and all that nonsense i mean you know these guys are just the lowest of the low scumbags you know people who you know you wouldn't mind a few you know just a few minutes in a, in a room with because one of them isn't coming out just just the fucking worst people in the world so in your opinion should the NCAA publish or uh, publish? Excuse me. Should the NCAA punish Penn State for the crimes that Paterno committed when he was there? Yeah, I, I don't remember who it was on Twitter. They, you know, they said that you know the the st- sort of stuff that the NCAA um, governs is whether teams have an unfair advantage. And if you want to come down on USC for getting a kid a house, and you know the Miami report that came from Yahoo and the free tattoos that. Uh, we're happening to Ohio State that allow them to secure recruits. I mean, not coming forward with the fact that you have a pedophilia who you have keys to the build, who you've given the keys of the building, and you've done everything in your power to cover that up. I would say that that is creating an unfair advantage, independent of the facts, and absolutely there in terms of NCAA violations. But more important that. You know, these guys are the worst people in the world. I mean, I can't even put that into into context just of how bad they are. I mean, this isn't about a kid who's impoverished, who is working for nothing for the chance to play for the NFL and universities printing millions, you know, off his off his jersey sales that he never gets anything and he just wants to go to the movies and have some disposable income. I mean, this is a, a systemic conspiracy by the head football coach, the athletic director, the top cop and the president to conceal child rape and do so in a manner that it allowed it to go on for 10 more years with eight more formal victims who testified. So, yeah, I mean, these guys should play. These guys should be in prison. 
all of them should be free. Everybody on that uh, scholarship should be free to their scholarship. They, and, and Penn State should go away. And if they don't care, I'm sorry, dude. Your school fucked up. You know, you, you did the wrong thing. Now fuck off and go away. Sorry, <laughs> that's how I feel. We don't need you. What would you do to the statue? <laughs> The statue needs. I don't, I don't need to do anything to the statue. I mean, the statue, the stat, the fact that there's a debate in the statue further exemplifies just how out of touch Penn State is. Because if you take a look at, you know, Joe Paterno, leader of men, what does it say? Coach, educator, and humanitarian. Um, first of all, he's not an educator. He's a football coach at a place where education is supposed to take place. You know, Bob Stoops is not an educator. Mac Brown is not an ed- educator. They're football coaches, all right? So let's just <laughs> end it right there. And if they are a humanitarian, I don't know about many humanitarians who cover up, again, child rape. So you want that to be your statue, fantastic. You want to celebrate the guy for years of service, great. It just shows you how out of touch you are. And I'll enjoy every time that we watch a Penn State football game, you know, that it could come up and it can bring up and we can expose the buffoonery of the supporters that support these clowns out there in State College. So keep it up, don't keep it up. I mean, the longer it stays up there, it just goes to show you, you know, how out of touch these guys are with society. Yeah, even Bobby Bowden has said uh, basically the longer it stays up, the longer people are going to talk about it. So even if just for PR purposes, they should take it down. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, for, I mean, look, a lot of things happen for PR purposes, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, Jay Paterno going out there and calling, you know, the free report a um, an opinion, and now the Paternos want an independent investigation of the independent investigation. I mean, look, Paterno's legacy has been has been legislated. It's done. It's gone. You know, there's nothing that's going to come out that's going to make us change. And everybody who feigns like, oh, I was duped, I was duped, are the people who really need to go and take a look, you know, stop with the ide- idiotic praise that happens with, um, you know, football players or coaches and just realize that most people in life are flawed. And you hope that the people that you choose to support have the ability to do the right thing. And Paterno didn't. So, I mean, you know, Rick Riley's article with the SPN, I thought it was interesting. I'm glad he called himself out, but, you know, what, what was he even doing so embedded into the lore and mystique of Joe Paterno? I mean, if anything, just go back to the 90s and go back to the arrest record that was happening in, uh, you know, at State Co- you know, Penn State. I mean, that's exactly what was going on. It was called State Penn back then because, right. you know, you had a lot of bad things happening. But, you know, obviously, I mean, how many excuses are you going to give a guy? So, yeah, I'm glad they're done. You know, I mean, I'm glad that Joe, uh, Jay Paterno won't ever have another job, and he can keep yapping away, and, you know, they can, you know, have their private jet, and their, you know, Mrs. Paterno can have her hydrotherapy, because, you know, who these people are in society has already been legislated, and these are the, these are the worst people in the world. The kind of last thing I wanted to talk to you about this is something that we talked to John Wertheim about earlier. Joe Poznanski is a guy who was on the sixth episode of this podcast and really gave us a lot of credibility, especially with the writers at SI, to come on to the show as early as he did and as respected as a writer as he is, and we'll forever be grateful to him for that. As you probably know, he has a book coming out on August 21st called Paterno, 
The book is in embargo right now. We have been in contact with the publisher who said they're going to send us a copy of the book as soon as it's out of embargo and that Biznanski will do this show, which is starting to feel less and less likely with each passing day because I have a feeling, for whatever reason, that instead of promoting this book, Joe Biznanski is going to crawl into a hole somewhere and die. But it seems like he was embedded for one year at Penn State, although that year was interrupted by the scandal. He was embedded at Penn State to write this story, which was going to be... I think a touchy feely biography of Joe, Joe Paterno, and obviously the story has changed. It, it totally blew up on him, and now there's a report today that SI declined a excerpt. And they're not going to run an excerpt, but uh, GQ is going to run one instead. Uh, this book's going to come out no matter what in a couple of weeks. Uh, Jeff Perlman, the author of our book club, Book of the Month, Book of the Year, uh, Sweetness, is on the record saying that he would scrap the book. What do you think about? What do you think the reaction is going to be to a book that essentially is going to be ninety percent the story of Joe Paterno's life and probably only ten percent about what is now the story of Joe Paterno's life? I think uh, the publishers are probably in a good position where they're never going to get better PR around the book than they are right now. I mean, we're talking about it, so if the if the book goes away, we're not talking about it. Um, you know, I'm sorry that Joe uh, Pizdansky spent a year of his life embedded in this story change, you know. Uh, sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes shit happens. Um, the, the story of Joe Paterno is not anything other than what his, you know, the tarnishing of his legacy. Nobody cares. I mean, yeah. you know, he, I mean, he's a, he's a football coach, man. He's a football coach who produced some good guys. He produced some bad guys. And at the end of the day, he is a, everything that you would say he would, you would hope he's not, not worthy of a book. You know, he's, he's the guy, we went after Bonds. I mean, they try to throw Barry Bonds in jail and Mark McGuire, uh, Roger Clemens in jail for committing perjury. They put Marion Jones in jail for committing perjury because they wanted these people. Joe Paterno committed perjury, you know, and he committed perjury because he has an environment where he thought he was above the law. You know, when the law came calling, he just didn't own up to it. He didn't do what Jason Giambi did, and a lot of those players think and say, let's book and say, yep, busted. I'm not going to jail. He fucking busted me. Oh, well. You know, this guy went to the mat on the lie. So, um, yeah, I mean, do we need a Joe Paterno book? I mean, is life so starved that we need to read about just how great Joe Paterno was back, you know, this time last year? Because this time last year, pre-scandal, you know what Paterno was doing? He was getting ready to negotiate, or he had already negotiated his out clause worth millions of dollars, you know, and that he was going to retire when the scandal hit. So what he did was he strong-armed Penn State when he knew he could get him and conspired with the guy who was conspiring to, you know, tell the lie and commit perjury and allow child rape to exist. So, no, and this goes back to 1998. So what? So where did Paterno's moral compass go wrong? So in 1997, he was a good guy, never did anything wrong, just looked the other way, and players who, you know, acted out of school or maybe have trouble with grades, and all those professors and compliance officers who said that Paterno strong-armed him into grades and, and, and to punishment reduce, reductions, that was all false. And all of a sudden, in 98, he just took a wrong turn. His moral compass went south when it was already pointing north. 
I just don't believe how you can make big changes. So no, I don't care for a paternal book. I mean, I don't, I don't need to read it. If people want to read it, great. I'm sure it'll do great in, uh, you know, in Penn State and where, you know, and you know, the morons can continue to celebrate him, and the rest of the, our country can kind of sit back and laugh and say, you know, wow, um, wow. But if anything, you know, I, I applaud Joe Paterno for shining a light on. Uh, much needed awareness that goes on with child molestation and pedophilia and allowing, you know, creating an environment where the hammer can be get brought down and more parents are talking with their kids about, um, you know, how to act and when, you know, right touching and wrong touching and inappropriate relationships. You know, if, if Paterno had just, uh, you know, not covered this up and uh, allowed for this environment, we might not be having this conversation. You know, it's Deadspin and GQ are going to publish excerpts from the book Sports Illustrated Pass. You give uh, what do you think about SI turning it down? Is that right thing for them to do? You think? Not for me to say, but you know, why? I mean, why? It's it's you know, Dan Patrick. If you ever listen to Dan Patrick's show, Dan Patrick doesn't do softball interviews. If you're if you just got a DUI and you're going to do media, he's going to ask you about your DUI. And if your publicist tells you no, we can't bring it up, they don't book you. And then what they do is they book you. Uh, then they talk about you about how your publicist said you can't book it. Right. Um, celebrating Joe Paterno's career as a football coach is uh, is uninteresting. It's not topical, and running an expert on the book solely to support the book, unfortunately, just isn't the story. It's just not the story. Um, you know, and if you want to tell the story, tell the story. I prefer to read the New York Times, where actually stories about this are, are fresh, true, and we're, we're getting news. But hearing about how Joe just helped one player out and was so getting ready for that game and how well-prepared he was for the Miami game and, you know, by the way, I mean, they got... They got so lucky in that Miami game, but they're going to grandstand because Vinny Tester already went colorblind for the evening. <laughs> but, um, you know, they want to take those victory laps, have at them. You know, I'm, I, I applaud SI, you know, for, for not doing it. But I'll tell you, the media is sick of these guys. They're no longer playing the game. You know, the, 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 the jig is up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's – I'm trying to think if there's an easy way to transition into golf. Let's, why don't we just do this? Why don't we just plan on talking about golf in the U.S. Open? Forget the British Open for now, because there's really no way to get from point A to point B. So <laughs> it'll be a good reason to get you on again, and we can talk about the U.S. Open in a couple of weeks. How about that? Yeah, that's fine. I'm down. Yeah, Let me know. There's no going from here to there, but thanks for doing that f with us. We really appreciate it. There's just nobody who can speak as passionately about this as you can, and <laughs> I'm glad to have gotten it. Thanks for, thanks for joining us again, Zach. We miss you. I don't more. have any... I don't have any bosses that are going to scold me, so I can say what I want. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank Zach Rosenfield for coming on the show today and speaking very passionately about the uh, Joe Paterno case uh i want to really really appreciate him being back in the mix too we always love having zach on we miss the days where he was on what every other week for football right he's just always on to talk about something you yeah, know machines fun computers. yeah all right uh just want to mention don't forget you can find us on facebook facebook.com slash the sportscasters you can also find us on twitter at sports underscore casters email us let us know what you think about the Poznanski book or any other topic the sportscasters at gmail.com 
You can also find us, our two blogs, sportscasters.blogspot.com and sportscasters.tumblr.com. And all of this is at our website, www.sports-casters.com. Don't forget about our other podcast, which is at uh, www.footballnation.com. Uh, last week we had Kerry J. Byrne. This week we have a NFL blogger on the show. Uh, so make sure you uh, join us at Football Nation to check that out. A little more sports over there this week than over here. Yeah, here this is a this is kind of a weird version of the sportscasters. It kind of I don't know that we necessarily planned it this way, but it just seemed to get about so much about the paternal thing. Usually we don't have a theme like that that ends up no. running through, but it just sort of happened that way this week. Uh, you, oh, pick four last week. We both went two and two. We had kind of had a hot streak going, but we both blew the game of the week and went with the American League, and the American League got blown out in the All-Star game. It was like 8 nothing in eight the second nothing. inning or something. And that was the final. Yeah. So the NL's dominant pitching... I always picked the NL, too, and the reason I didn't is because it just seemed like they had such a bad lineup this year, and didn't matter. Their pitching dominated the game, and they won 8 nothing. got runs early, and then that was all they needed. Uh, my other loss is I thought that Semin would sign with the Penguins. He remains unsigned. Yeah. I won my pitcher of the week in Clayton Kershaw. He beat the Padres 2-1, to one, and I also won the Rangers over the Mariners in just kind of a random baseball game, 3-2. to two. Uh, Don won his winning pitcher of the week. Pitcher didn't get the win, but no, he team won too. nine to eight. It's the second time Don's gotten away with that, yeah. and uh, he also won his kind of random game with the Giants over the Astros three to two. Puts me at sixty six and forty seven, and Don at fifty eight and fifty seven. All right, the game of the week this week we're going to go with the British Open, which, uh, like we said, we didn't actually get to as heck this week, but uh, we're going to pick a foursome again. We haven't been very good at this. No, I don't think any of our players. We've done it for won. both majors, and right. we're zero and eight. All right, so we're each going to give each. four. I'm going to go Tiger Woods, Luke Donald, Lee Westwood, and Phil Mickelson. Okay, I have traditionally left Woods out, and all I could think about for the first three days of the tournament last week was that I blew it by leaving him out because it seemed like he was going to finally win. And I think one of these times he's going to show up and win a major, and it's I want to make sure he's on my team when he does it. So I'm going to pick Woods. I'm also going to pick... Uh, McElroy, I'm going to stick with him. It, it seemed like this could be the year that he would dominate, and it hasn't quite worked out that way. I'm also going to pick one of the best players who's never won a major. Seems like he could always break through, though, and Sergio Garcia. And, I don't know, uh, I still like Bubba Watson a lot, so I'll pick him as my fourth. All right, my winning pitcher this week, I'm going to go with... I don't know if you noticed this, but baseball, there's a lot of good matchups this week, like tight matchups. Yes. Uh, bad teams playing bad teams, good teams playing good teams. So it wasn't real easy to pick like an overwhelming favorite. So I'm going to go with Homer Bailey, who has an 8-6 and six record. It's not bad, 14 decisions. Uh, uh, he plays for the Reds, and he's going to pitch against the Brewers on Friday at 7-10. All right, my winning pitcher this week is Wade Milley. Uh, he's got a 10-5 and record with a 3.13 ERA for the Diamondbacks. They play the Astros. It's fun to try to pick on the Astros <laughs> in this. They're pitching Hap, who's 7-9 and with a 4.83 ERA. All right, my host choice this week, another just kind of random baseball game. I'm going to take the Yankees over the Blue Jays Wednesday at 1.05 p.m. I'm going to take the Cardinals over the Cubs. Uh, Lance Lynn is pitching for the Cardinals. He's 11-4. and Faces off against Travis Wood, who isn't Kerry Wood, who's retired. Right. Four and three of the 3.05, so I'm going to pick the Cardinals over the Cubs in that one. 
My bold prediction, last week my bold prediction was that Shane Doan would sign with the Sabres after rumors that there was a big fat uh, offer from an Eastern Conference team. I'm feeling that's less and less likely to happen. So in that respect, I'm going to say no big-name NHL player moves this week again. Uh, that's Shane Doan, Alex Semin, Bobby Ryan, Rick Nash, and Shea Weber. I'm going to say there's no contracts, not necessarily moved, but there's no news in, on any of their fronts. All right, I'm just going to roll my bold prediction over from last week. My prediction was Simon would go to the Penguins. It still feels like the Penguins need to come up with something this offseason. There's a strong Russian presence in that locker room. It seems like anyone's going to take a chance on him. It's going to be them. So I'm going to try it one more week. If they don't sign him this week, forget it. (laughs) not going to go 0-3 on this stupid prediction, but I'll try it one more time and roll it over. All right, that's it for today. I want to thank John Wertheim, Ben Nicholson-Smith, and Zach Rosenfield for joining us on the program today. We'll be back next week. Don, you can cue the hip. All right.